Hello, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, just published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. What makes them tick? In this episode, I talk with Francis Fry, who's a professor at the Harvard Business School and co-author of Unleashed. We talked about her expertise in fixing toxic workplace cultures. Welcome to The Indispensables. My guest on this episode is Professor Frances Fry. She's a professor at Harvard Business School, and she recently served as Uber's first senior vice president of leadership and strategy. Her TED Talk about building trust has logged over 4 million views. She was described in a recent Los Angeles Times article as the go-to woman for companies like Uber and WeWork looking to improve their image. She's made headlines in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, USA Today, the Washington Post, CNN, NPR, CNBC, The New Yorker, Fortune Variety, ESPN, New York Magazine, Vox, and Business Insider. Professor Francis Fry, welcome to The Indispensables. No, oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Bruce. Thanks for the invitation. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and I absolutely love your book, uh, Unleashed. And um, it's uh, the unapologetic leader's guide to empowering everyone around you, uh, which you wrote with Ann Morris uh, and is uh, published by Harvard Business Review Press, uh, which is also my new publisher. So uh, I'm thrilled to have you on, on the uh, Indispensables. Well, awesome. And Anne is my co-author and also my wife, and we have a home with two beautiful children in it. Ah, excellent. Fantastic. Somehow I missed that detail. Well, mazel tov. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so let me ask, when you were hired to fix the toxic culture of Uber, why did you start with trust? And is, is it correct to say that it was a toxic culture? When you were hired to fix the culture of Uber, when you were brought in to work on the culture of Uber, why did you start with trust? So I was brought in after the catalyzing event of the uh, Susan Fowler blog. And when that happened back in March, and immediately they they hired uh, lots of investigating firms to come and do a big report, I started in on June 1st. So I started a few months after that, but I got to know the organization through that month. And I think what's safe to say about the organization is that First, managers didn't had not been taught how to manage. So what appears, if you look at Susan Fowler's blog, first you'll see something that no human being should ever have to experience. And so you'll read it with horror. And then if you read it again with a management systems lens, you'll be like, oh my gosh, there were no management systems in place here, 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 and here. So one of the things, you know, you can have a toxic workforce because of people and you can have a toxic workforce because of process. The process is much easier to fix. And indeed, just if you look at the evidence, the culture was fixed within a year and we ended up separating with 20 people in June of 2017. And that was out of 13,000. So it was there had been, um, you know, it, it, it had been a bad culture for 
far too many people, uh, but not in a way that you had to pour liquid cement on. It was all surmountable, which I find to be the case with one exception. A toxic culture is from the vast majority of people behaving in a toxic way. I don't know how, or at least don't care to fix those cultures. But if it's the vast majority of the people are good, but we've put them into bad processes and systems, that I do know how to fix and that I find very noble to fix. Yeah, I I, I love what you're saying because um, the idea that systems, practices, competencies uh, have a direct link to culture uh, I think is intuitive for people who really understand systems, practices, competencies, and culture, uh, but but otherwise maybe not. What, where does trust fit in? I know it's a huge theme in your book, and I wonder where does trust fit in uh, to the equation? So I I believe that all human progress begins with trust, not all human interactions. So we have loads of interactions without a foundation of trust. We just don't progress in any of those interactions. But if we're going to move forward, we need a foundation of trust because it's what permits us to not keep relitigating whatever it is that we agreed to. It permits us to give one another benefit of the doubt. It permits us to reach even higher than we could have before. So anytime I go into an organization, I look for shoring up the foundation of trust. At Uber, it um, you know it was really a multi-sided organization, not just with riders and drivers, but also with regulators and shareholders and community members and you know cities. And trust had broken down in a lot of places. So I think it's beginning of everywhere I go, but for Uber in particular, they had broken trust with a lot of unintentionally broken trust with a lot of. Uh, constituents, and we know well how to repair trust. And so that's what we set about doing. Yeah. What, how would you describe it? What is the, I mean, right now, I think we're in our culture writ large. Uh, there are huge issues of trust. My view is that a big part of that is we can't even agree on basic facts and logic. What's your understanding of the sort of the basis of trust? Yep, and I'll tell you it. And I actually think it can be applied between individuals, organizations, citizens in a country and internationally. So trust, we got the big unlock when we realized that trust has three component parts, authenticity, logic, and empathy. And what that means is you are less likely to trust me if you think I'm saying something that I don't believe, if you think I'm being inauthentic, if you think I'm not being the real me. You're less likely to trust me if you really find the rigor of my logic to be super questionable, and you're less likely to trust me, if you don't think I'm in it for you, if you think I'm largely in it for me, and the only time I'm concerned about you is when your needs happen to overlap with my own. So that's authenticity, logic, and empathy. Anytime there's a breakdown in trust anywhere, including, I suspect, the examples you have in your mind now, we can, tra- we can trace it to one of those three. What's important about that is that with a microdiagnosis, we have prescriptions to overcome it. But very importantly, if you have a, and we call what gets in the way a wobble. So if you have a logic wobble, and we call it a wobble because it's temporary state, the prescription for authenticity won't fix the logic. And the prescription for empathy won't fix authenticity. So it's really important to find out which of the three is getting in the way, and then we can give you prescriptions to overcome that. 
But here's the challenge. Whether or not you trust me is my obligation. So I have to earn your trust. It's not that I'm going to give you my trust. I have to earn your trust. You have to earn my trust. So to the extent that we have trust that's broken down in society, it's for two reasons. One is that people really are trying to earn trust, and they just didn't realize what the diagnosis was, and so we can help them fix it. But the other is, I just don't care if you trust me. <laughs> and that one I can't fix. Yeah. So in other words, um, the, the trust you have in me, uh, it lives in your brain, but it's the result of how I behave or how I interact with you or- And how you earn it. Yeah, it's a complex function. And we know the component parts. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love your use of the the, the term wobble because um, it relates directly to shakiness. And so when trust is shaky, there's a wobble. Yeah, and, and but also temporariness, right? Because we don't don't we don't want to pour liquid cement on it. It's not like oh, I have a logic wobble and I can never overcome it. Actually, if you wanted to, we could teach how to overcome it in 24 hours. Yeah. And, and so, but, but I hear what you're saying that somehow what I like your um, use of the language uh, that, that you're not as interested in, in, in engaging if I don't care if you trust me, right? because what, you can't do anything about that. I can't do, nor do I care to do anything about it. So what do we do in those cases? I think you're going to need a different author. <laughs> I, I won't be able to help you. Gotcha. I can only help the people who want to improve. I can't help people that that don't. And I don't spend any time on it. So, And I don't even have a good author for you to point you to. Yeah, because maybe it sounds like you don't have confidence that that is something that ultimately can be Not fit. that at all. I bet there are people who can do it. It's just not me. And it's literally not what I... So I like to help good people win and I don't spend any of my time thinking about people that I would categorize as bad people. None. God bless you. Um, well, there's not enough of that uh, these days. Um, and I guess that's when you say um, it's not about you, you're speaking to your reader, that that's what you mean. Um, maybe that it's it's about there's some some fundamental service ethic that's that's implicit in your whole approach. Yeah. And so what we, our definition of leadership is that leadership is about making others better first as a result of our presence and then in a way that lasts into our absence. But the fundamental part of leadership is that my job is to make others better. And if I do that, I will thump people that are only concerned with them, with themselves. So the act of leading is the act of empowering other people. There's a beautiful Toni Morrison quote that essentially says, once you have earned that power you so richly deserve, your job is to turn around and empower someone else. And that's exactly what we find in organizations and institutions that win. Um, now you'll every once in a while find a leader for whom it's all about them, but the, nothing they do will last into their absence, nothing. Yeah, that's a brilliant uh, 
concept you have of presence and absence. And uh, it has such a depth. It has the feel of yin yang, positive, negative, yes, no. It has, it has all the feel of completeness uh, that your opportunity as a leader is when you're present, but somehow like the proof of your leadership is your, is what happens in your absence. Is that part of what you're trying to get at? Yeah, it is. It's so well put. And, you know, we wrote this book before COVID-19, before Black Lives Matter. Um, So when we were thinking of your absence, we were thinking maybe you moved on from the job, you got promoted, but now absence is all the time. Like, if I'm not on Zoom with you, I'm in your absence. And so it's pulled forward what happens in our absence to a much more concurrent way. But essentially, when the leader is not in the room, are we behaving in the way that the leader would have wanted? Um, that's the that's a testament to the leader's effectiveness. If everyone just can't wait for the leader to be gone so that they can start behaving in the way that they want to, uh, that shows that the leader wasn't very effective. Yeah, and there's something you know. I have a much more mundane uh, sense of empowerment myself, but yours seems more profound. But um, but my sense of empowerment is I call it the, the the boring art of delegation is really ultimately where empowerment meets up with people's day to day tasks, responsibilities, and projects. And there's there's something really powerful about the way you frame it. Even just if you look at from uh, the delegation of specific tasks, responsibilities, projects, concrete goals with with clear parameters and timelines, and then the intervening time between when you have the conversation where you try to set somebody up for success and they're deliverable, even that time frame could be described as an absence. And of course, uh, uh, much more, as you say, in, in COVID with everybody is actually absent from each other, it, it, ha- it takes on uh, even a different valence. So I think what you say makes good sense. Um, I would say that, you know, you can do all of those beautiful things you said in setting in, you know, delegation and the systems and, and, and creating good goals and the like. I would, I guess I would add on to it is that my empowerment is, what if you took radical accountability for the success of the other person? What else would you need to do in addition to that? And then I would seriously consider doing that. So you're going to check in more often. It's not going to be sink or swim. And you're going to be curious. If something didn't go well, you'll be thinking, oh, how could I do it better so that it goes better for them? As opposed to, gosh, I really wish they'd listen to me. It's, huh, how can I explain it in a way that they can hear it? So I really put a lot of onus on the leader for setting the conditions for others to succeed. And then I want them to set the conditions for others to succeed. And that's the way that it really accelerates forward. Yeah, I I, I agree with you a thousand percent. I I always say sink or swim is false empowerment, reinvent the wheel. And it makes me crazy because you know what? We're not doing it. We're not fairly applying it. Like all of those people, all of the swimmers, they got informal help. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> we just didn't acknowledge it. And the people that sunk, they got no informal help. So it's a, it's a total myth. Yeah. It's, you know, somehow the idea that empowerment is um, do it however you think it should be done or reinvent the wheel or sink or swim uh, yeah. and, and Crazy. leaders often let themselves off the hook. And I think most people, what they want from their leaders to be set up for success, to have more guidance, direction, support. Um, and, and that's what people need. And, and I think that um, leaders have a profound obligation to provide that. It's, it's one of the things that I find so compelling about your book um, is that you, you, you really get across the human element in work. And um, you use uh, words that a lot of people are afraid to use. You use, you use the word love. And um, it, it makes me think of parenting uh, when you set high standards for someone and then help them achieve it. Or you say reveal a deep devotion to them. Uh, and, and this is something that um, I think it, it, it's such a gutsy way to write about leadership. It, I think it's, you know, it, it also is empirically the best way to accelerate someone's performance. So, and what we have found is that most of us have heard the message that you can do one or the other. So you can do one at a time. You can either set high standards or you can reveal deep devotion to someone's success. But we didn't realize, at least empirically, we didn't realize that we, we could and indeed need to do both at the same time. So, you know, if I'm as a parent, if I'm like really deeply devoted to my children, I might insidiously lower the standards for them. Or as, you know, as a colleague, I might be like super high standards for someone. And then I'll just like forget to reveal how devoted I am to their success. And so what we're trying to do is break that, uh, that trade-off that isn't a hard-coded trade-off. It's just one that behaviorally we've gotten locked into and to show people that you can do both at the same time. And when you do, the performance of other people skyrockets. And we also find that to be the greatest act of love is to set someone else up to thrive. Yeah. I mean, it's not doing anybody any favors um, to hold them to a low standard. Nor is it doing anyone any favors to not reveal your deep devotion to their success. Yeah. And, and, and where do you draw the line? Um, one, one of the issues that I run across in um, some of our seminars is drawing the line between devotion to somebody's success as a leader, as a, as a colleague, and the, the very real personal commitment. And you use the word love. That, that has a very strong personal dimension. Well, I, so I think in the setting of high standards with deep devotion, it's an act of love. Um, but in terms of the personal you know, involvement um, with another person, I don't, I have seen it work with very little and I have seen it work with a lot. So I'm not sure that it's an explanatory variable. Like we, I think we've narrowed down the two things you must have. The other things to me are optional. That is, they don't explain the variation in performance. So if I'm setting high standards and I am revealing a deep devotion to your success, that is I'm not sink or swim. I'm like super curious about what's getting in the way. Uh, if I'm doing all those things, that's plenty. And additional things are bonus, but not necessary. 
Got it. Um, and, and, and you also talk about, um, championing difference, uh, inclusion, um, and, and when you succeeded in helping to improve the culture at Harvard business school to become more gender inclusive, um, is that an example of creating, um, an environment of greater belonging? Yeah. So the way to think about this is that, like, you know, you have a problem if there are any demographic tendencies associated with achievement or sentiment. So at Harvard Business School, men had higher grades and higher self-reported satisfaction. So they had men had greater achievement and a higher sentiment than women. So that to me is a demographic tendency. Any organization that has those, we should go out and close the gap. What we have found in every circumstance is that when we close the gap in sentiment, for example, not only are men and women, do they end up to be equally satisfied, but men end up being more satisfied. So the act of closing the gaps makes the world better for everyone. Um, so I start with, are there demographic tendencies associated with who's thriving? If there aren't, I go on to another problem. If there are, I treat it like every other problem we have, which is not some third rail, oh, it's been here for decades, oh, it's a big society problem, oh, you know, we need to have started 10 years ago. It can be fixed just as fast as any other problem. In my experience, always in less than a year. Yeah, you, you, you talk about turning around cultures in less than a year, which I love. And I know all of my CEO clients, you know, their ears would perk right up. Culture problems seem so intractable. I mean, um, I, I'm somebody who believes that uh, uh, cultures happen either by default or by design. Um, I think often they there's some element of design, but, but often cultural problems happen by default. And uh, I guess it's it's shared meaning, it's shared practices, it's shared behaviors. But how do you dig in and change a culture? Yeah. So here's what I would say to your to your CEOs, which is first, if you have no demographic tendencies associated with who's thriving, don't worry. Like that would be the first thing. If you do, here are the places to look: hiring, development, promotion, retention. I promise you, everything that you'll want to uncover will be a double click on each of those. And when you no longer have demographic tendencies, you can stop. Because one of the things when we get to culture is, oh, how do I know when I'm done? Oh, you're never done. God, imagine if we said that about any other problem. Right. <laughs> you're never done. Well, then why am I starting? <laughs> like, I actually think you are done. <laughs> you're done when everyone has an equal opportunity to thrive, when we're not artificially getting in the way of some people. Um, and I think it can be measured by achievement and sentiment. Um, so I would, you know, it's a super quick diagnostic. You don't need anyone to come in. You can, I'm sure the, your CEO friends are, or clients are, have satisfaction data. Does it vary between men and women? Does it vary between black and non-black people? Um, and then, you know, organization has 50% women, but only 5% women at the top. Well, we have a demographic tendency associated with achievement. So, and then if you want to solve that, that's like the scorecard. You're done when that's done. And if we want to solve it, it's either a hiring development, promotion, or retention problem. Either you're not hiring people, you can't find them, you can't get them to say yes, 
You can bring them in, but you can't develop them. They don't get early traction. You can develop them, but somehow they're not getting promoted. Oh my gosh, you promoted them and then somebody else takes them away. It's always one of those. So I would make it, and what we try to do in the book is make it super duper operational, as operational as every other problem that your CEO clients are so magnificently suited to solve. And we have somehow, you know, made this particular problem out of bounds. I just want to bring it into the operational awesomeness of everyone. Yeah, so that's that's a, a great um, description of how you take an operational or a systems approach to what might be uh, too often looked at as intangibles. You're saying, no, no, it's very tangible. Super tangible. And your scorecard is super clear. And not only that, but you've taken, right, you've taken very simple metrics uh, that are easily observable and you're tying them to four key levers and you're saying, uh, don't overcomplicate this. Yeah. And what I'm also saying is don't give yourself false participation trophies. So, you know, someone's like, oh, well, I used a balanced slate when hiring. I don't care. Do you have equal numbers, like equal representation of men and women? If balanced slates helped you get there, great. If they didn't, stop using them. I did unconscious bias training. I don't care. Do you have like this? Is the sentiment the same? So we, we have got, we have conditioned ourselves to give ourselves credit for the inputs, you know, participation trophies. And those have been, um, you know, really like just digested by organizations and we track who does it and how we do it without any of the feedback loop that we put into every other problem we do. Did it help? If it helped achieve our objectives, do more of it. If it didn't, do it differently. It's like, so I want us to apply that same can-do spirit here, but I've, I've rarely seen any other problem in organizations where we're so keen on giving ourselves credit solely for the inputs. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you know this, but one of my books is called Not Everyone Gets a Trophy. So, <laughs> but I like your, I, I like your oh, emphasis. So good. Well, everybody's given their everybody's giving themselves trophies in the human resources world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I think you're exactly right. So, so that's what you mean by accountability in terms of diversity and inclusion goals. Yeah, like be accountable to the outcomes. Don't give yourself credit for the for trying. And is that part of what you did at WeWork? Yes. So at WeWork, uh, and when I joined WeWork, it was before they they ran into their uh, into the IPO and things like that, I joined at a time when the organization was doing really well. And the general counsel and CEO, um, when the organization was doing well, they were like, "Look, there's something that's been bugging us, and it's time to take action on it." And that is, um, we don't we have oddly low representation of awesome women at the top of the company. It's not because we're anti-women, but we just, our, our processes don't reliably produce awesome women. Can you help? And said, sure. So we piloted it in one part of the organization and ended up with about, it was about 60% or 65% women within six months. It happened to be, you know, hyper growth helps because you can, you know, you get a lot of movement. And then that's when, and then we were set to roll it out to other parts of the organization. And then that's when the IPO troubles happened. But the thing to, the big unlock of what they learned, one is that they, they observed the demographic tendency and they were 
they wanted it to change and they knew that they didn't know how to do it. And that's plenty. And they also implicitly knew that if we keep doing what we're doing, we're going to reliably produce that which we already have. So if you're psyched with what you have, keep doing everything you're doing. But if you ever want different outcomes, chances are you're going to have to try different things. So one of the different things we tried is that the organization didn't know a lot of awesome women. So we had to learn how to recruit people we didn't know. Turns out the organization, even in its hypergrowth, everyone was like one degree of separation from everyone else. We knew everyone before we hired them. So we taught the organization how to hire people. Go find the best people that you don't know, and let's learn how to attract and retain them. And then that was a glorious, glorious exercise because there was just amazing talent <laughs> that they didn't know. And, uh, and I didn't know. I didn't know anyone that we hired. I didn't have a relationship with any of them. And it was so glorious to go find the best people in the world at things. And then when you're really going to find the best people in the world, there aren't going to be demographic tendencies associated with who you find. Um, and there weren't demographic tendencies associated with who we found. And it just, it, and it was just, you know, night and day, the upskilling we did in that, uh, in that first pilot part of the organization. So in other words, if you go for ability, skill, expertise, uh, experience, competence, then you're going to uh, eliminate these demographic tendencies. Well, let me, let me say it differently. If you go for those things in the same part of the pond you've always been fishing, you're going to have the same demographic problem. So I'm going to do it in the reverse. If you're only finding men, you are not going for the best people. Because there's just no chance that men are, are – right? there's just no chance. If you're only finding women, there's well, no chance. Well, you're, because you're, you're, you're leaving so much talent on the table. And so what we find – and this was true for WeWork, but I find it true in every organization I've worked with. They've become really good at fishing in a narrow slice of the pond of humanity. They know where to recruit. They know where the people are. They know people who know them. And so keep your existing processes every time you want a great fish from that part of the pond. But if you ever want to fish from the rest of the pond, which you are so clearly missing, then we got to learn how to look differently, how to attract differently, how to develop differently. Uh, and so that's what we did. And we expanded the pond of humanity that they had access to. And it was glorious. Is that the same thing you did at Riot Games? Yeah. So um, it was a, a little bit that we did at Riot Games in that uh, it was finding people that they didn't know. And um, and so that helped there. But Riot was also, you know, Riot is like one of the most magnificently customer-centric organizations I've ever been a part of. It's players for them. But it's like the whole organization is just so in touch with the player experience. And I had never played games, so I didn't get it. Um, but a billion people play games. My My young boys play games. And it's an important part of their of their lives. Uh, they socialize with their older cousins over games, uh, particularly during uh, during lockdown. Everyone at that organization understood players and was just the most empathetic and wanted to do right by players and wanted to create a great experience for them. It that didn't always extend to employees. So what I helped them do is more on the cultural side than on the diversity side. The culture was actually quite diverse, maybe more diverse than any culture I had been a part of. But not everyone was equally thriving. And it, there it was a matter of 
they had some cultural values that had been really good in the past and the organization had grown out of, but they hadn't replaced. And so the cultural values had become a little bit weaponized. And a weaponized cultural value is this like awesome value that someone uses for personal gain. And values by default are not for personal gain. Yeah. What would be an example of that? Yeah. Great question. So default to trust is my favorite example. And this is a cultural value that's at a lot of institutions. It was also at Riot. And the cultural value is, look, if we all give each other the benefit of the doubt, like everything is going to go better. So let's like, you know, let's, let's with generosity, give each other the benefit of the doubt. That's default to trust. But how it would uh, become in practice sometimes is you would disagree with me. I would become impatient and I would say, dude, default to trust, like get out of my way, just go along. That's not what default to trust meant. So I took this glorious, noble thing and I made it personally expedient for me. That's how you weaponize a value. Right. So you're really just saying, trust me. I'm really saying get out of the way and and silence yourself. <laughs> like I'm saying exactly the opposite of what I want, of what the values want. And it's a shortcut and it's definitely, you can totally tell if I'm doing it for my own selfish ends or not. Yeah. But, and, but, the, but I mean, the, the, the kind of the connection to trust is if you trusted me, you wouldn't try to be an obstacle to what I, to my goal here or yeah, my, but it, it completely misunderstands trust, right? Cause I have to earn your trust. It's not, if you trust me, right. That's like, not at all. I have to earn your trust. And it was, and it really was a shortcut because people were only doing it when they like didn't get a good night's sleep or they were impatient. Like you could see when things would get weaponized. Um, or there was another one uh, that was essentially question authority. And this was like, you know, maybe it didn't say question authority, but that's what it meant. And it's awesome. Like that's how the game started. Like this was the first game where you couldn't buy your way to higher performance, um, which is like a really important thing in gaming. Um, super frustrating if somebody can buy their way to greater performance. So you can buy like looking better, but you can't buy your way to better performance. And that was really against, you could become an expert and have it be free the entire time. The better you got, the more the, the more you could do for free. And so it really went against all monetization and the ways in which games were designed. And so questioning authority was a really good thing, but that didn't have to go down to the micro level of the person. <laughs> so that, you know, oh, you're in the art department and I'm an engineer, but I'm going to question, you know, why are you using pencils instead of, you know, or if I'm in art, I'm going to say, what are you doing with that code? Why doesn't the code do this? Like it, it, it could get so micro that everyone was questioning everything else, even with no um, basis for being able to question it. Uh, and so it good idea because it was the dawn of the company, but it got to a bad execution of it. Yeah. And there's, uh, to go back to your, uh, concept of authenticity, um, when somebody is weaponizing, as you put it, and using it uh, for personal expedience, trying to weaponize a value for personal expedience, uh, there's a lack of authenticity. I mean, it's a re- it's it, it it each of those cases sounds like a reductio ad absurdum that you know just for my own purpose. And yeah, uh, I guess it's a lack of empathy. If I was going to think about it, um, that I'm I have no empathy for you when I'm using the when I'm weaponizing it for my own gain. 
and you used Latin in like a really cool way. I couldn't follow it, but right on. <laughs> Reduction to the absurd. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, reductio ad absurdum. I'm talking to a professor at Harvard Business School. I'm just trying to sound smart. <laughs> well done, sir. Okay. Um, um, so I, 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 I want to understand, um, are, are there... When, when you look at culture and uh, toxicity and culture, is it always a function of demographic imbalance? Um, I think that that's the, if I was going to give like blanket advice, that would be my blanket advice because usually the powerful are doing something to the less powerful. Um, the other place I would look are also in, um, in surfacing of misconduct. Uh, and things like that. But if I just had to give a one size fits all demographic tendencies is going to be really big. I guess other aspects of surfacing misconduct needn't have demographic tendencies, but that's like a second order. If you get this done first, you'll be well on your way to the second. Yeah. And is the demographic tendency the symptom or the cause? Because symptom. it's a symptom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The cause is never like, so you know, we saw that men and, you know, men had higher grades than women. Um, and then within a year, they didn't. So it wasn't, gender wasn't causing the problem. What we found out is that um, when we dug a little deeper, we found that it, 50% of every grade is class participation at HBS and 50% is exam. They, they were performing the same, men and women were performing the same on exams. So it was variation in class participation. And when we went deeper in that, it was often due to a slow start. So they were men were more likely to start speaking day one, class one in class, which are like 90 student sections. It's, you know, it's like a pretty awkward environment before you get used to it. And some people just sat in and were really comfortable taking up a lot of space and really comfortable learning what they had to say as they were saying it. And then there were other people who really wanted to take their time, get very comfortable with the surroundings, and they were perhaps put too high of a bar on what they had to say. So one of the things we had to do is teach people how to um, correctly calibrate what makes a good comment and to have the courage to speak earlier than they might otherwise. Yeah, although there's something also very admirable, or certainly my reading is that it's a a more – admirable and efficacious approach to appreciate the context, listen, learn, um, to use real data in the room to calibrate before you start talking. I mean, if I were looking at measures of likely success, my instinct would be that somebody who takes in data before they start talking uh, should be more successful. Having, but having said that, somebody has to open, right? So somebody has to go first, and it's participant-centered learning. And so what we don't want people to feel like they can abdicate the responsibility of going first. Well, that's a great answer. Check. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, okay. Um, so uh, – so I want to shift gears a little bit uh, because I, I'm running low on time uh, if I'm going to uh, not drive my editor crazy here. Um, but, I, but I'm but i so interested in, in uh, your approach. And can you speak to 
this idea of imagining and believing in a better version of someone. Oh yeah. Because I, I, I just, it's a beautiful sentence, right? It's a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. And Anne is the, Anne is a beautiful writer and I, I contributed, but she's the, she is the beautiful writer. And that sentence in particular, I just remember reading it when it had finally on its like 30th draft come together. And I was just like, Oh, and so here's what that, here's, here's what's going on there is that, you know, I don't like to condemn people to the worst version of themselves. Like all of us, those Milgram experiments that were done that could show that good people can behave badly if you set the right conditions for it. I believe that leaders, an obligation is to set the conditions for the best version of ourselves to, sh- to come forward. So first of all, I think that's leader's responsibility. So I want to like click that facet forward and I want to interact with that version of people. But then you can go ahead and extend it to what if I interacted with a version of people that's even better than that? What will happen? And it turns out that people strive for it. So by interacting with not only the best version of people, but the version of people that they want to become, that they've signed up to become, they get there much, much faster. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's a a very nice way of saying holding somebody to a higher standard. It, It does indeed do that. And it, it gives someone uh, like a, your, your imagining and believing in that better version gives them something to try to live up to. And they feel the deep devotion. And so it is a lovely manifestation of both. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's giving me goosebumps thinking about, you know, if, 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 because if what, you know, your concept of unleashing and really trying to, to, to make that meaningful giving someone a version of themselves to live up to. I mean, that's amazing, really. And right. And it's going to require our presence for like a minute, but then it can occur in our absence. So I hear back from students 10, 20 years later, and they're still propelling forward and they'll attribute, you know, what they did with me or with someone else to the initial momentum. But what happens afterwards is uh, is what we really want to do. So we show them how to do it, and then they are doing it with their teams. Um, so I have, you know, people that I've taught that now have like companies that they are leading in this way, and it's just beautiful. Yeah, and let me ask you: uh, Does this meet up with wobbles? So if you're if you're trying hard to live up to this better version of yourself, or as um, uh, a friend of mine put it, practicing being the person you want to be. Lovely. So are these wobbles in authenticity, empathy, logic, where does that fit in? Is that like you're trying hard to be your best self, but then you stumble or you wobble? Yeah. So first of all, perfection is way overrated. Uh, That'll be the first thing. And I like to liberate people from the burdens of perfection. Um, But for trust, usually I didn't earn as much trust as I wanted, and I'm not sure why. And we can trace it back to one of these three causes. When we surface that cause for you, we call it a wobble because it's a temporary state and we can show you how to overcome it. And literally, we have it as a trust triangle because it's three things. If there were four, we'd make it a trust quiet quadrangle in a second. But we've now done this with over 100,000 people and at every unit of analysis you can imagine, and it's been these three. So I think the wobbles are usually unintentional and when someone can like shine a light on it in a way that makes us see it we can work around it um 
in terms of the best version of ourselves, look, if I'm well rested and I've eaten well and I've exercised, I'm a much better version of me than if I haven't done one of those three things. So I'm not going to be the best version of me all day long, but I like the practicing of it. And I also think it's important to be forgiving, but to be super clear when I'm choosing to lead, I need to be as oxygenated as possible because I'm putting the oxygen mask on other people. So that's when I want you to be great is when you're choosing to lead. When you're not leading, let imperfection, you know, come all over the place. Can people self-check or are there good ways to self-check one's own wobble? Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, one of the things we say is that um, if you don't trust yourself, why should the rest of us? So take, so take a look at the three just in vis-a-vis yourself. How does somebody get to be like you? Uh, how does somebody get to be, I mean, it, it, from the outside, you know, people look and they, they read this incredible book, which is so um, authentic and so deep, but it's, it's, it's also, you know, there's nothing soft about it. That's what I love about it. It's, it, 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 it is a perfect application of the human element to real business metrics. And, um, and then here you are teaching at the best business school in the world. Um, we have probably the best publisher in the world for the <laughs> book. You can fix a culture in one year. How does somebody get to be like you? So I'll just, I'll make a couple of observations. One is I had a deep rigor that I poured humanity on top of. So I was a math major and then I studied engineering and then operations management. I don't care how you get rigor, but rigor is super necessary. You can get rigor through studying language, you can, but, but rigor is really needed. Because if you have humanity not on top of rigor, you're not gonna be able to persuade people. You're only gonna be able to persuade people with emotional arguments and you also need logical arguments. So one is get rigor however you can. I happen to do it through a series of academic uh, things. Um, but the other thing and the real secret to my success is I married up. <laughs> well, I can relate to that. <laughs> um, uh, we live here in, uh, in New Haven uh, because my wife got her PhD here at Yale and she won the Pulitzer Prize. Can you believe that? No, I can't. Like like three people win that thing in the history of time. That's amazing. Good for you. Yeah, you really did, Mary. I like, yeah, I, I felt the kinship beyond participation trophies. Professor Francis Fry of the Harvard Business School, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. I just loved every minute of it. Thank you. In our next episode, I'll talk with Mary Trout, Chief Commercial Officer of Candela, a medical laser company. We'll talk about strong leadership and getting things done. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. Any little bit helps to drive us up the charts. You can learn more about GoToism and the techniques which make indispensable people stand out in their jobs and careers and lives in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, available wherever books are sold. If you're interested in bulk orders, please check the show notes for more information. And finally, you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com, by following me on Twitter at Bruce Tulgan, or find me 
on LinkedIn and Facebook at the links in the show notes. Until next time, stay strong and be indispensable at work.